This morning, let me invite you to turn back to that text that I read just a few moments ago in Luke chapter uh, 18. We're going to be examining those eight verses. I trust all of you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, Last week, I encouraged you to encourage yourself with the truths that God is God, that he is great and he is good. And trust as you meditated on those, you did have something to give thanks for. And uh, glad to have you back. And as we enter this uh, holiday season, uh, trust you will stay secure by walking with your Lord over the next number of weeks. Uh, Today, as we look at these eight verses here in Luke 18, uh, it is key for us to kind of set them in context because we are not just making our way through the book. Uh, It's a little harder in a series like this because if if I was just making my way through the book of Luke uh, and we had just gotten to Luke 18, you would have had 17 chapters to kind of lay out the context. Our series, uh, we've had to... uh, Take a little bit of time to just kind of lay out what's going on when you come to this. It's like picking up a a paragraph in a letter. You need to know what happened before and and later. And so as we come to this particular parable, it is, uh, the first thing I'd like to do is look at what happens immediately following this. Uh, Immediately following the parable, we find that Jesus in his earthly ministry is coming to a close very quickly. He's on his final trip to Jerusalem in Luke chapter 18. I would say not final trip. There'll be another trip in the future. But his final one on his first coming. And uh, we find that that to be the case in verse 31 of Luke 18. Notice what it says here. It says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, We are going up to Jerusalem. So that's what's going on in Luke chapter 18. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit on. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So here he's telling his disciples, hey, it's coming. Look at all this injustice. He's on his way. He'll go through Jericho in the next uh, couple of chapters. He'll he'll come into Jerusalem with the triumphal entry, and then things get very bad. However, for us, they get really good. Very helpful for us. So... His disciples are about to encounter great injustice at the hands of the Jews and the Romans there in Jerusalem. That's what happens right after this parable. What happens right before it? Well, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus also forecasts injustices that will come or offenses or temptations. Look what it says in Luke chapter 17 and verse 1. It says, then he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Why? Because people are going to do some pretty bad things to you and to the other disciples. But woe to the one through whom it is, it does come. The people who do that, you know what, those who who wreak uh, injustice upon you, it is better, he goes on to say, that they have a 
millstone tied around their neck. Then they offend one of my children. Then the Pharisees who were there asked him about his kingdom. Of course, some people believe, are they just mocking him or were they really interested in knowing what Jesus was saying about the kingdom? Look what it says in verse 20. It says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom, of coming, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And what I believe he's talking about is this. They were feasting their eyes on the king at that very moment. The king was in their midst. So the kingdom was in their midst. And then immediately after he answers that, The Bible says that he began to talk to his disciples in verse 22, and he says this, and he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And what he begins to do is he begins to recount how one day he is going to return. And he begins to talk about his second coming. Most of you are very familiar with his first coming and what he did. But there was going to be an intervening time and then ultimately his second coming would occur and he would bring final judgment and set up that kingdom. And so he talks about all that is going to occur in that final judgment and how it will suddenly appear. And then at the end of Luke chapter 17, notice how it ends right before we get to our parable. It ends with kind of a morbid picture. Chapter 17 ends with this. And they said to him, where, Lord, where will all this judgment, when is it going to take place? And Jesus said to them, where the the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And what he's talking about is the final, in many ways, the final judgment. When he comes, sets up his earthly kingdom, and it will be visible to all. That his judgment has come and there will be some finality to it. So the context before the parable and after the parable are some great tribulations, some great offenses. In the midst of all these, he lays and places this particular parable. As Jesus' disciples are looking to these events to take place... Jesus has something that he wants them to do as they meditate on those things. The message of this parable is clearly given by Luke. You know, sometimes you have to kind of like really dig to find out what is he trying to get across here? What's the message? Well, here the alarm goes off right away. Luke tells you exactly why Jesus tells this parable. Look what it says in verse number one. And he told them a parable. To the effect, okay, here it is, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Pretty simple. My encouragement to you is what what Luke has just said. Why Jesus gives this parable, that none of you would lose heart in life. That you would not grow discouraged and bitter and upset, but instead that you would pray. The message of this particular parable, the parable of the widow and the unjust judge is this. As you and I wait for the second coming, we must not lose heart 
but persist in prayer. Let me say that again. As we wait for the second coming, and all of you who are believers here, you're waiting for that. You're waiting for his appearing. As you and I wait for the second coming, we must not lose heart, not get discouraged, not get upset, because there's a lot out there that's going to try to do that. What do we do instead? He says this, always pray. Always. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Jesus knew that his disciples would have a tendency to give up when hard times came. So here he calls them to call on him, ask for his help. And he uses this simple story of an unjust judge and a widow to teach this glorious truth. Now I'm looking at a congregation today, all of you who have a tendency in this waiting period before his second coming to give up and faint. It may be that some of you have experienced great injustice against you. Our society and the fallen world that we live is known for its injustices. If you haven't experienced one recently, you will. Possibly today, you've had injustices done by your neighbors. And it's just not fair. Some of you, it happened this week at Thanksgiving. Why would they ever do that? Some of you, it's come very close to come. Some of you, it may have been a thought-to-be friend who does something extremely, in many ways, what you would say is vicious to you. You know what? In the midst of this fallen world, you and I are going to be tempted to lose heart due to the trying circumstances. Because it's messed up. We live in a world that has gone wrong. Some of you, it's due to even the weakness of your own flesh. And it's easy for us to get bitter and decide not to talk to God anymore. Maybe that's a question that I should ask you this morning. When was the last time you had a long conversation with God? And you just spent time talking to him. When was the last time in the middle of the day you just spent time in prayer? Or in the middle of the night when you woke up and you just said, you know what, I'm just going to devote some time. Like the psalmist says, at midnight I will rise and give thanks for your righteous judgments. In this parable... God calls us to be people, if you know him, to persist in prayer. I hope that you will not give up in life and lose heart. I want you, as a result of what you hear in this parable, to go to God in prayer repeatedly, always, and keep at it, either until God calls you home or until he brings home here, because that's ultimately what he's going to do. And so as we explore this truth, what we're going to see is really kind of two supporting truths, first of all, and it's this. Number one, the reality of injustice. You'll experience it. I mean, the whole context around here is about injustice. Then I want you to see the profitability of persistence. It's profitable for you to persist in certain things. That's not the end all. But there is a profitability in this. And then finally, I want you to see the reliability of our God. He is someone you can count on. 
He is a just judge and he will answer your prayers and he will do it speedily. This passage then closes with a penetrating question for all of you. Will you do this? Will you exercise faith? So first of all, let's look for a moment at the reality of injustice. Jesus lays out the setting of the parable uh, in verses 2 and 3. He talks about a certain city. Listen to what it says. It says, and he said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city. Now, this particular city, of course, Jesus is just telling a story. It could have been any city at that day. Of course, he's just telling a story and giving a parable. We're introduced to, first of all, to a judge. He's described in two ways. He didn't fear God and he had no respect for man. In fact, what are the two most important commands that the Bible tells us to love God with all of our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And here was a guy who was a violator of both of them. When it says he didn't respect man, it meant that he never showed other men greater status than himself. To respect somebody is to put them at a greater status than you. And if Of course, those who are believers, we are to be people that prefer one another and and do show respect to one another. But here was a man who never preferred. In fact, he was always number one in his life. He was the one who wanted to, and of course, we who know Christ, we learn from our Savior, who who was in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And was someone who served. But here was a guy who did not do that. In fact, have you ever thought of what they call this guy? He was called the unjust judge. (laughs) That's almost like an untaught teacher. Or a destructive builder. Or a serious comedian. An unjust judge. The very thing that he's supposed to do provide justice he was not providing it so it's somewhat of a humorous little story here so he talks about this unjust judge but remember the context in just a few days as Jesus is telling this story about an unjust judge he's about to experience what unjust judgment is he's about to go into Jerusalem and he's going to stand before numbers of courts and guess what None of them are going to give justice. So he knew about unjust judges. At that time, the court system that he was describing would have comprised both Jewish and Roman judges. In fact, many of you know that Israel would have had very much Jewish leaders. But because Rome took over the Jewish, you could say, empire... They set up magistrates, and it seems as if what Jesus is probably alluding to was a Gentile or a Roman magistrate who cared le- couldn't care less about the God of that particular area, and he really didn't care what any of the people thought, because you know what, he was just doing his time, and so here was this unjust judge, then Jesus introduces us to a widow. Widows were particularly dependent on others in that day. Apparently, she, had, she didn't have a man to represent herself. Because you would have thought in that day when oftentimes women were demeaned, 
and they were looked down upon. It was almost like you don't go to the judge on your own. You have an advocate, maybe another, a male who will go and stand before you. And it, it almost looks like she has nothing. And so she goes to the judge herself and represents herself. And what we find is that this woman had experienced some sort of injustice. Maybe it had to do with uh, her husband and how he died or uh, what happened after he had passed away. But there was an adversary. Because what is she shouting for? She's shouting for justice against her adversary. Now here let me just state that the main point is not the reality of injustice. I believe it's a sub-theme here. Because he talks about injustices before, he talks about injustices after, and he knows that we're going to experience them. Jesus uses this problem to prepare his disciples for future days, and we are living in those future days, where in between his comings, we will experience injustices just like this widow did. We live in a period, because of the fall, a lot of things go wrong. Life isn't fair. In fact, one of the first lessons we teach our kids when they say what? Dad, this is not fair. We respond, of course, son, life is not fair. You don't have to look very far and there are injustices everywhere. For many of us, we've experienced them personally in very deep ways. Some of them, people did injustice to you purposefully. They meant it to happen and they inflicted upon you. Some of you, injustice happened to you and it was not, you could say, purposeful, but it's just because of the fallen world. There was accidents that happened and there's injustice Some of you, you've experienced that injustice because of being a follower of Christ. Of course, the Bible says all that will live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Will suffer persecution. And maybe a question that some of us need to ask ourselves, have I been living godly in Christ Jesus? If I don't ever experience injustices, am I I truly going upstream like I'm supposed to be? We will experience injustices. And as the Lord's coming approaches, we have to deal with it. Now, thankfully, you and I live, we still live in a country where our courts allow us at least to seek justice in some way. However, all of us know that our courts are flawed. There are many unrighteous judges. In fact, all of the judges are unrighteous in one way. They need the righteousness of Christ. And if you're here this morning, let me just say, all of you in this room, because of the fall and because of your own sin, you are unrighteous. And the only thing that'll get you any moment in eternity with God, it's that you would have a perfect righteousness credited to your account. And the only person who can provide that is none other than Jesus Christ, the God man. And it is received not by anything that you do. You cannot earn it. You cannot live morally. You cannot get baptized to get it. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. 
You have to be given righteousness and it's only given through his son. And if thou wilt confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, you shall be saved. That's how you become righteous. But unrighteousness is what we experience here on this planet. And you know what? We ought to be people that try to live, those of us who have received righteousness, we ought to be, you could say, advocates for righteousness. Of course, we live in a society today where it's really big for us to be involved in social justice. And we ought to be advocates and we ought to be those who stand on the right side when it comes to racism and poverty and sex trafficking. We ought to be advocates for righteousness and do our part, as the Bible says, to be salt and light in our community. But that's not what this parable teaches. Because ultimately you can do those things, but that really is not your mission. The mission of our church is to make disciples of Jesus And to ultimately bring people to the only just one who ultimately will bring social justice at his coming. And he tells us what we ought to be doing during this time. And we'll see that in just a moment. But we should be ones who stand for righteousness, but there's something more. And that is what we've got to stand for, and that's to pray. So we see the reality of injustice. But I also want you to see how this parable then highlights a widow's persistence, her action. So I want you to see now not only the reality of injustice, but I want you to see the profitability of persistence. What happens with this woman? Well, in the parable, she kept going to this unrighteous judge demanding justice. Look what it says in verse 3. It says... And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying or demanding, give me justice against my adversary. So she kept bothering him. She didn't give up. In fact, in the end, the unjust judge complies due to her persistence, even though he didn't even care a thing about her God or about her. Look what he says in verses four and five. For a while he refused But afterwards he said to himself, though I fear, neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not, literally it says this, beat me up. It's literally that she will not give me a black eye by her continual coming. So what do we learn? We learn that this woman is extremely persistent to this unrighteous judge. Now, I want to be cautious here because I do not want to teach you that if you'll just be persistent, you're going to get what you want from God. You ought to be persistent. This sermon isn't about being just kind of like the persistent turtle who will always win the race, okay? He's just going to keep doing it and, it's, it and that you would put the little rabbit foot of persistence in your pocket and you'll always get your way. She was persistent and she got what she wanted. But it's not a point of, hey, if I just be persistent, I'm going to get whatever I want. There's something bigger in the story than that. 
But I do want to point out that he does say you ought to be persistent. There is a point where this is a key, you could say a proverb in some ways, of persistence. Persistence does work. Okay, I remember a number of years ago, and we were about to enter the Christmas holidays, and moms and dads are asking their kids, what do you want for Christmas? And it was probably six, seven years ago, we asked our son Jacob, who was probably about five, four or five at the time, what do you want for Christmas? And he wanted the big red car at Target. That's what I want. The big red car at Target. This is one of those like big cars that you can get in and like drive around your front yard. And of course, my wife and I, first of all, we looked at the price tag of it. And then we looked at like the quality and like, I'm going to charge this thing all the time. I mean, it's a piece of junk. We don't really need that. And so we were like, no, we're not going to get them the big red tar- car from Target. And when other people asked him, hey, uh, I remember uh, I think Pansy asking him in our church, she was like, so Jacob, what do you want? I want the big red car from Target. And he kept asking for it. And he was persistent, I can tell you that. Well, after about two or three weeks of the big red car at Target, we go into Target, it just happened to be that all of the big red cars are like 50 to 75% off. And then we're realizing, oh yeah, maybe a piece of junk, but it's a cheap piece of junk. <laughs> and here we were two and a half weeks before, like there's no way we're going to get in the big red car. Guess what he got for Christmas? The big red car from Target. <laughs> we did return it a few days later <laughs> because it was a piece of junk. <laughs> But the moral of the story is this. If you're persistent sometimes and you keep asking, you know what? There is a point that being diligent about something, and and you look at that even in the world, persistence often brings about results. In fact, there's a proverb in Proverbs chapter 13 This is one that I've always loved this particular proverb. It says, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be richly supplied. And the idea is if you're diligent and you keep doing it, there's just something about a truism of you, your persistence, it's going to reap benefits. You read of success of people like Albert Einstein who just persisted. How many bad light bulbs did he have until he had the one that stayed lit? He stepped with it. Let me tell you that diligence is important. But the important thing, the even more important thing is this. Don't just be persistent. The key to all of this is not that that she was persistent The message is really the final point of the message, and it's this, the reliability of God. Notice who you're talking to. You know what? My son, who was he talking to? He was talking to his mom and dad who loved him and cared for him and wanted to do things for him. And in the same way, the key was not persistence. It was persistence to the right person, and it is God. 
You get to the crux of the truth of this parable when Jesus calls them to listen to the unjust judge. It's almost like, what are you saying? Listen to the unjust judge? Listen to what Jesus says in verse 6. And the Lord, okay, this is Jesus. And Jesus said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. So what did the unrighteous judge say? He says, because this woman keeps bothering me, keeps coming to me, I'm going to give her her request. So he says, listen to what he says, but then he adds a very key statement. He asked a rhetorical question that all of his disciples should have been able to answer. Look what it says in verse 7. He says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? So what he does is this. He compares the unrighteous judge with the perfect judge, God himself. The key teaching is that the perfectly just God, you know what he's going to do? He will give justice. He will bring it about. It will come. It will come in his timing, but it will come. And as you and I, in the call, we're, we're, our job is to call to him. In fact, the Bible says that the elect, now who is that talking about? The elect are those whom God has chosen as his children. Those who before the foundation of the world, he brought you into the fold. You say, Pastor Brian, how do I become one of God's children? Well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But the elect are those whom God has chosen. And what are they, what's their characteristic? What do they do? The Bible says that God's elect cry to him both day and what? Night. And what are they calling for? I believe this. They're calling for God. Would you bring justice? Would your kingdom come? Would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Elect people, what do they do? They go to a righteous judge and they call for him to bring righteousness. God, would you do this? And what is the the natural response? Will not God answer that? Of course he will. Now, at first, uh, uh, of course, it it, it takes time, and he's going to answer that question in just a moment. But our responsibility is to pray to him. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, he tells the believers in Ephesus, he says this, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making what? supplications, and it's interesting, he says, for all the what? For all the saints. In the midst of all this, this is what believers do. And then Jesus asks that second question in the parable. Look what it says at the end of verse 7. He says this, will he delay long over them? Now at first, you and I live in 2020, does it appear like he's delayed long when it comes to injustice? I would say yes. It appears that way. It's, it's Jesus saying, will he delay long in this? You read Hebrews chapter 11 and you read about the, those in the hall of faith and what happened to a lot of them and the injustices, some of them cut, cut in half. When are you going to 
solve all of these injustices. Our problem is we often view time through our finite lens. We are so time-oriented. I mean, I'm the worst at it. Okay, I, I am just, I, I look at each minute, I, I like to be on time and keep people moving in this, and I'm always looking at the time. God stands above time. What does the Bible say and what, do you, what does it want to remind us of? Listen to what he says in Second Peter. He says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. So that's good for you to remind, to remind yourself. You know what it's been since Jesus left this planet? It's been like two days. For us, it seems like a long time. And he's going to bring justice. And it's going to come soon. Why does he do this? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, will he delay long? Then Jesus answers. Listen to what he says at the beginning of verse 8. He says this, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. He's going to give it speedily. If the unjust judge gave justice, will not God give justice in the long run to those who cry for it? Let me tell you, he's going to do it. It will happen. And it will come, and literally it says it will come speedily or better, maybe a better translation is it will come suddenly. I wish I had time, but I could show you in the context of Luke chapter 18, right before that in Luke chapter 17, where Jesus is talking about the second coming, he refers to two events. One of them was the flood. And in the flood, you know what they're doing? They're all eating, drinking, going through life, giving in marriage and all of this. And all of a sudden, how quickly did God's judgment come? It came suddenly. Then he refers to another event. He refers to Sodom and Gomorrah and how Sodom and Gomorrah, they were living it up. They were doing what they wanted to do. There was so much injustice going on. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, brimstone comes from heaven and God brings judgment. And what Jesus is saying is this. Those of you who are praying for justice that I'll bring in and I will bring in my kingdom, I'll tell you, it is going to come suddenly. And no one's going to miss it. Just like you can see the vultures circling. He says, my judgment and my justice is going to come. It's going to happen suddenly and completely. So what is Jesus calling us to do in the midst of all this? All the injustices, you know what he's calling us to do? You and I are to be God's people who in the midst of his two comings, rather than fainting and getting all bent out of shape about the injustices and our world falling apart, what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to be people who always pray. That's what elect people do. And how often do they pray? They pray day and night. That God would do a work. 
in the midst of injustices in this world, we're not to give up. We're not to lift up our hands in defeat. We're not to grow bitter. We're not to resign ourselves to this fallen world. It is a call to us to anchor ourselves to an unshakable God who does everything right. You say, what does it do when you and I get into a practice of praying to God regularly in the morning, in the evening, at night? What does this do? It anchors us to the only secure thing in this unstable world, and it is God himself. And it helps us to be able to navigate it. And I'll tell you, some of you are so bent out of shape about your world that you've lost your peace. You are nervous about everything going on, but I'll tell you, God's elect people know God is going to bring justice. And he's going to bring it at his time. What are we to do? We're to go to prayer and pray. That's why Paul tells the Philippians. He says this in Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about what? Anything. What about the Senate races in Georgia? What about this? What about this? What about this? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And what will happen? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you, you and I, get used to it. Injustices are going to come and they're going to keep coming. Until King Jesus, his presence is clearly announced when vultures are over the bodies. We should not lose heart, but we should look up. We need to commit ourselves to the judge who will one day judge righteously. I mean, we've been talking about this unjust judge. What are we supposed to do? Listen to what one of those guys who were li- was listening to that parable was a guy by the name of Peter. And in 1 Peter, he writes and says this, you and I who are dealing with injustice, he says this, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in, his ter- in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But listen to this. But he continued. We ought always. He continued what? In trusting. Men ought always to pray. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges what? Justly. You know, that's the exact opposite of the unjust judge. There is a judge that one day is going to judge justly. And you know what we're supposed to do in the midst of all this suffering? We are continuing to entrust ourselves. You say, what does it look like to entrust yourselves? You pray. I entrust. I submit myself to you. You will Take care of this. And through this, we will be able to enjoy the very comfort that our Lord enjoyed when he was on this planet. We have a reliable God that we can go to. Our text ends with a very simple challenge. Jesus asked one final question. Look how he ends. 
our parable. The second part of verse eight, he says this, nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? And of course, the answer is this. Is he gonna find faith on the earth when he comes? Yes, he will. We know from other texts, there are going to be the sheep. There are gonna be people that have demonstrated faith. We know that this will happen. But I I believe the question that Jesus is asking here is a question that is stirring them to action and really stirring them to be introspective. Almost like, what will you do about this to his disciples? Are you going to be people who always pray and don't faint? It's almost like a coach who at halftime is giving that stirring halftime speech and he's asking his offense, he's saying, offense, will my offense step up and work together and put some points on the board? He throws out that question and in all of their hearts is like, yeah, we're gonna do that. Will my defense be like an iron wall and fill in those gaps and keep the other team from the end zone? Yeah, we will. Will I find faith on the earth? It's a challenge. It's a question, but it's a challenge. Are you the person who says, God, with your help, I desire to do just that? Maybe today you have gotten into a habit of getting discouraged with whatever injustices or trials, and you're upset, you're bitter. There's something better that you can do. You can take it to the Lord in prayer. Just like that song says, Men ought always to pray and not to lose heart, not to faint. Some of you, you need to make a commitment. You know what? Like that verse says, morning and at evening and at noon, I will cry to you. I will come to you. And you know what? It'll stabilize your life. Let me tell you, people of faith, God's elect, you know what they're doing? They're praying those things. You say, Pastor Brian, I don't know how to pray. I've never learned how to do that. Well, it's, isn't it great that one of the disciples asked that very question? Lord, teach us to what? Teach us to pray. Let me tell you, you are in the best environment when it comes to learning to pray. Why? Because you have a Bible. And Jesus teaches you in his word. He has that answer. Teach us to pray. I mean, the book of Luke I challenge you to do a Bible study and read in Luke how often Jesus got away to pray himself. He wasn't just saying this, he did it. He was always getting alone and praying. How did he not faint in the flesh? Some of you'd say, oh, he was God. I submit to you, he was in all points tempted like as you, yet without sin. And he prayed, he demonstrated it. And he prayed to his father, and you can too. And I'll tell you this, you have a church family. Those of you who are part of this church, you'd say, I need help learning how to do this. Find another prayer partner. Say, hey, would you, can we pray this next year? Maybe some of you, sometimes people say it takes about 40 days to get a, a habit established. Maybe it's 40 days of prayer. God, I want to do this. Some of you, it may be with your spouse. God, I want to pray with my spouse regularly. I'm gonna pray with my best friend. And you know what? Men ought always to pray and not to faint. That's the message of this parable. Luke gave it out very clearly. 
So may God help us to be those who barrage heaven with our prayers. And I'll tell you this, his answer will come speedily. You watch it. We are at the threshold of it. Maranatha, may the Lord come quickly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truths of this text. I ask that you would help us to be people who give ourselves to prayer.